Awesome. Well, I'm glad the ark didn't tip over us. We would have had a death on the church staff, but... Um, <clears throat> Hey, on the stage uh, with me this morning as I preach is a replica of uh, the Ark uh, of the Covenant. And some of you who've grown up in church or grown up in following Jesus, uh, you have seen uh, the Ark or heard it preached on or heard a scripture read about it at some time in your life. Or maybe you saw it in like an Indiana Jones movie or uh, you've heard about it talked about in popular culture. Just to put you at ease, this is not the real Ark of the Covenant, just a replica, and I want you to know that I also understand that it's just a replica, and uh, there's no, I get emails every once in a while, but here, it's just a, it's just a replica, it's not real, uh, there's no inherent power in it, it's just, a, I'm just using it this morning as a sermon illustration to talk about the, the, the presence of God. Uh, a lot of you here this morning are, are familiar with the story of Moses in the Old Testament. In fact, the first five books of the Old Testament, commonly referred to as the Pentateuch, is written or authored by Moses. And so he tells us the story of creation, which is how we got here. He also tells us the story of the development and the birth of God's holy nation, the nation of Israel, made up of the Hebrew children. And Moses is the one who gives the instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the reasons why it's important to understand and preach the Old Testament is because it helps paint for us a prophetic picture that we see Christ fulfilling. And so as believers, we understand the Old Testament from the perspective of the New. And do you know that in the New Testament there are only 12 chapters in the entire New Testament that don't include an Old Testament reference. And so when we talk about preaching scripture and, and being biblically literate and understanding who this Jesus is and what this new covenant means for us, sometimes it's helpful, helpful to look back into the shadow of the Old Testament and pull out the substance of who Christ is. Or we look into the abstract of the prophetic literature and we pull out the forensic nature of who Jesus is. And so it's my hope for you today uh, that you would walk away from this sermon this morning with a greater hunger for the things of God, a greater desire and appreciation for the presence of God, and knowing that you live in literally the best time that there has ever been to be alive because the fullness of God, the hope of glory, the mystery that, that, that those things are now takes residence inside of you. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament it's what held and, and symbolized the presence of God. And, and you know the stories. Anybody who touched the ark irreverent, irreverently would die. If you went into the presence of God, you had sin in your life, you would die. It, it was this thing that was so holy that without the blood of a sacrificed animal, no man could approach it. And we understand that Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who has applied his blood to the mercy seat, which sits atop of the ark, now provides us unfettered access into the most holy place of God's heart where we get the fullness of his presence. So in the Old Testament, the presence killed sinners. But in the New Testament, Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, transforms us into his image and likeness. And so in the New Testament, that new covenant reality coming out of the covenant of death into the covenant of life, we understand that the picture of the old is now revealed to us through the person of Jesus 
in the new. Now, I know that the presence of God is everywhere. Uh, and and uh, I, I think sometimes, uh, e- even, uh, even over this last season where uh, the, the church uh, was shut down for a little bit, I, I know even sometimes the language that we use. It's like, well, Jesus is everywhere. God is everywhere. It doesn't really matter if you're in church or you're not in church because wherever you go is church because Jesus is everywhere. And although I think I appreciate what people are trying to communicate when they say those types of things, Uh, The reason why we have such an appreciation and an honor for the gathering of God's people is because when we gather, we take what is universal, which is the presence of God, and we magnify it in a locality, which is the church of God. And so, for example, if you ever go out on a summer day and hold up a magnifying glass to the sun, it takes what is everywhere and brings it somewhere. So when we talk about the manifest presence of God, what we're talking about is where two or three are gathered, I am there. If two or three could agree on anything, that they could consider it done. And that's why the church is so central to this whole journey of Christ's followership. Because when you get around other people who are going in the same direction as you, all of a sudden you feel a boldness and a courage and encouragement, a faith that comes on your life that is supernatural in its very core. I think the thing that I missed most when the church was shut down was the gathering of God's saints for corporate worship. Now you can sing these songs anywhere, but when you sing them in the choir of God's people, something comes on your life. And what we're talking about is that the presence of God, which was relegated to a box in the Old Testament, now in its fullness takes residence in every believer who calls upon the name of the Lord. And for you and and for I this morning, it's my hope that we would leave this place with a fresh appreciation for who God is. The Ark of the Covenant was built, and we'll read that story in Exodus 31. It was built out of acacia wood, and that acacia wood was overlaid with solid gold. And the two cherubim, which is another word for angels or, or messengers of fire, were to hover over, and they were sculpted, and and they were meant to provide a covering over the ark. And when the high priest would go into the tabernacle of meeting, the most holy of holies, once a year, they would take the blood of 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 a heifer or of a lamb, and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And it would represent that the sins of the nation would be put off for another year. Until Jesus enters the equation, and through the veil of his torn flesh, the blood of a spotless lamb is applied to the mercy seat. The old animal sacrificial system is done away with, and in Christ, we now have fullness. And so what was done is a picture in the old paints for us a reality of what you and I have by inheritance in the new. And it was his mercy that covered his presence. Now, in fact, when Moses would go into the tabernacle of of, of meeting, the scripture would record that as Moses would minister to the Lord, the Lord would come down like a cloud and rest upon the mercy seat. The Bible says that, and God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. And as Moses would interact with the presence of God, oftentimes there was some sort of sign in the sky that would rise from the tabernacle of meeting. And people would know Moses is meeting with the Lord. Uh, Watch this story in Exodus uh, 31. 
the Bible says this, God spoke to Moses. He says, see what I've done. I've personally chosen Bezalel of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the spirit of God, giving him skill and know-how and expertise in every kind of craft to create designs and work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set gemstones, to carve wood. He's an all-around craftsman. In verse 6, not only that, but I've given him Aholiab of the tribe of Dan to work with him. And to all who have an aptitude for crafts, I've given the skills to make all the things that I've commanded you. The reason why Exodus 31 is significant is because it is the first time in all of Scripture that the Bible records that an individual had been filled with the Spirit of God. Let me redirect you to verse 1 where it says, See what I've done. I have personally chosen Bezalel of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of of God, a creator, a craftsman, a designer, an artist filled with God's spirit, watch, introduces a nation to God's presence. Now watch why this is significant, because art belongs in the church. Creativity belongs in the church, because when it's married to God's spirit, it becomes a key element in drawing people into his presence. And do you know why creativity isn't a spiritual gift? Because it's not something that only certain individuals have. You were designed by a creative God, and when his spirit fills your life, it animates your creative expression. And God rose up an artist to introduce his presence to a people who were without a home. And his presence became a compass for the Hebrew children to go from lost to being found. And see, that's why God in this hour is giving authority back to his church to lead the charge in creativity. Because image creates desire. And so we can't do boring, bland church. We can't just go through the motions or go through the rehearsal and just present to people the same thing that we've always presented. It's when the church comes alive to a creative God that a nation finds its purpose. We serve a creative God. I don't paint. I can't sing. I don't really play an instrument. But when I'm in his presence... Words come down from heaven, and God's creativity is displayed through my ability to communicate. Now watch what happens. The church is a home for beauty. It's not an afterthought. It's not if we can get around to it. And that's why we strive for excellence in what we do. The key is not your talent, it's his spirit. And when his spirit rests upon the creative discipline of your life, it becomes a gateway for presence. So for us... As we think about what it means to be a creative person, regardless of what field of work you find yourself in, what you begin to recognize is that the way for, every, the way for whatever my hand to touch to prosper is to allow his excellence and his spirit to channel through my life and function in my sphere of influence. See, some of you have believed a lie this morning. I'm not creative. You've even said that about yourself. But how can you not be what your father is? The first thing that he's revealed in in all of scripture is the creator. His spirit hovers over the darkness and out of the void creates substance. And then Adam, created in the image of God, breathed into by the breath of God, comes alive and sees a father who is a creator who gives him express permission to recreate or procreate. 
It's always been in the heart of God for you to be a creator. When your creativity meets his spirit, it functions as a gateway for his presence. I want you to look at this ark and imagine how heavy it would be made out of solid acacia wood and covered in pure gold. Not only that, but the tabernacle of meeting was like a mobile tent. It wasn't just that they carried this. The priests carried the table for the showbread. They carried the bowls of incense. They carried the lampstands, all made out of solid gold. They carried all the animal skins that would become the tent or the dwelling place for the Holy of Holies. They carried the curtains. They carried the rugs. They carried it all together. Historians believe that the weight of the tabernacle, including the Ark of the Covenant, was probably between 8 and 10 tons. Here's why that's important for you, friend. If you can't carry the weight of your calling without daily encountering his presence. See, if I carry my calling, carry my destiny, carry my concerns, carry my desires, carry this community, but don't first carry his presence, then I won't ever make it to where God has called me. And when you carry his presence, watch what happens. His presence carries you. Burnout doesn't come from what I carry. It comes from what I'm missing when I try to carry. And if I will first carry his presence, if I will first carry what gives me rest, if I will first carry the thing that gives me peace, then as I carry his presence, his presence will carry me. Fred, this is important. This is important. Watch what Jesus says in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fred, your followership of Christ is not without cost. It'll cost you comfort. It'll cost you relationships. It'll cost you old habits and patterns. It'll cost you your sin. It will cost you your opinions. It will cost you everything. But when covered by his presence, even what seems unbearable becomes light. We can sing fill me up all day long, but until we've emptied ourselves in pursuit of Christ, he has no room to work. And what you gain from following Jesus will always be more valuable than what you've lost. I'm reminded of the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples in the book of John, where Jesus is ministering to the crowds, and the Bible says, and the crowds desert him. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, will you leave also? And they say, where else will we go? Peter says, where else will we go? Only you have the words of life. When we think about what the presence of God means to us as believers, what we are reminded is that there is nowhere else to turn in this world for living water. Politics can't offer me what presence offers. Entertainment can't offer me what presence offers. Academia can't offer me what presence offers. It doesn't mean that those things are inherently evil, but what it does mean is that when I go to man-made wells looking for living water, I'll always leave more thirsty than when I showed up. And when Jesus ministers to a woman at the well, I am so struck by that story in John 4. 
And Jesus says, why are you here? And she says, I'm thirsty. And he says, but I offer you this water that you would never thirst again. And the Bible says that when she leaves to go rally her community about this man that she has met, she leaves her water jar at the well. Almost as if to say what I have trusted in before could never satisfy the thirst in my life. I have found living water. I found it. <laughs> Come meet a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. Yeah, I, I, I know that, that I don't always get it right. And there's always room for improvement in every single one of our lives. But my question for you this morning, Fred, is when's the last time that you've wept in his presence? When's the last time the Bible has captured your heart? See, that's, that, that's our secret to success, is we make a choice to still be moved by the beauty of the Lord. When you plug into that secret for spirituality, what you begin to realize is that's, that's truly not by my might or, 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 or by my power, but by His Spirit alone. When I think about what it means to encounter the presence of God, what I'm reminded by in Scripture is that in order for that doorway to open, it, it, it commands intimacy from our lives. I think that this is what most people miss about the parable of the wise virgins and the foolish virgins that Jesus tells. They've got oil in their lamp. The wise ones do. The foolish ones don't. And they're waiting for the bridegroom. And when he appears, the foolish ask the wise to borrow their oil. And Fred, you can't have my oil because it's not for sale. You can't borrow my oil because it isn't mine to give away. You must develop intimacy with the Lord out of a spiritual discipline in your life. If all we do is encounter the presence of God together for a 90-minute section on a Sunday morning, we are selling ourselves short on what we've been invited into. And when you understand that you've been invited into a lifelong pursuit of the presence of God, it might culminate on a Sunday, but it's available Monday through Saturday, then really that revelation begins its transformative work in your life. We don't have intimacy by osmosis. We have intimacy by choice. So we are people who make a choice. I will get into the presence of God. I will magnify his name in my life through my praise, and I will allow that spirit, his Holy Spirit, to do transformative developmental work in my heart. And in doing so, I will look more and more like him every day. In Hebrews 9, the Apostle Paul instructing the church on connecting the prophetic literature of the Old Testament to the reality of the new tells us about the Ark of the Covenant. In verse 1 of, of Hebrews 9, the Bible says this, Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. See, a tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. Now this was called the holy place. But behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. It had the golden altar of incense and a gold-covered Ark of the covenant. Now the ark contained, watch, the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. And above the ark were the cherubim, or the angels of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. I want you to see this morning, friend, what the ark of the covenant held. 
because it gives us insight into the heart of God. Paul says this in Hebrews. He says, inside the ark, what it carried was the stone tablets that Moses received from the Lord. Inscribed by the finger of God, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, rules, principles that God gave His people for holy living. Number two, it, it contained a, a golden bowl filled with manna, which was God's resource or provision that came down from heaven that fed His people in the wilderness. And number three, it contained Aaron's staff, his rod that had budded. And, and I'll share with you that story here in just a moment. I believe that these three things reveal something to us about the nature of God and what it looks like to live a life hidden in the presence of God. And number one, the law or the Ten Commandments rested within his presence. Friend, let me be clear. Unless you understand his law from a place of his presence, then what was meant to be light will become burdensome. And see, that's our danger in preaching and teaching. If you get the law, but you miss out on his heart, you will subscribe to religious principles and find yourself in the tombs instead of with abundant life. And we become like the rich young ruler, presenting ourselves to Jesus, claiming to have followed all the laws of Moses, but missing out on the heart. We don't teach the law apart from the presence. We pursue the presence, and in doing so, we understand the command to live righteous and the command to live holy. But it's impossible outside the presence. It's impossible to measure up. It's impossible to fill the obligation of the law without first finding yourself in the presence. I can't earn myself into holiness. I can't perform myself into identity. I can't somehow strive on this side of heaven and do things in such a way that I, I could be presentable to the Lord. No, I first must be covered in presence. And there's a reason why what rests over the presence is mercy. Because without his mercy, we ain't getting in anyways. It is his mercy that is invitational in nature. All who are heavy burdened, all who are laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to the place of mercy. Now in my heart you will find love, but before you ever get the law, what you'll find is my presence. It's not that scripture is without law. It's that scripture is so filled with presence that if you miss the point, you'll miss the entire thing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanting to stone the woman who was caught in the act of adultery according to the law of Moses. Jesus doesn't meet her and say, well, you know, uh, 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 this type of living is okay and do whatever you want because the law doesn't matter. He lifts her up and looks her eye to eye, says, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. He introduces her to presence and then says, go and sin no more. If this generation hears, go and sin no more, but they never see the gaze of the Father, we will raise religious tyrants. We need people to gaze on the Father. And when your eyes meet, you are transformed. There's something that happens in your life. There is a desire for righteousness and holiness. No, you won't ever get it right, but I've got to encounter His mercy before I encounter His mandates. It's His mercy that gets me in. That's why we're invited to the mercy seat. You know, the sexual ethic of Scripture is burdensome. Adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, and lust. The relational ethic of Scripture is burdensome. Loving your enemies, doing good to those who despitefully use you, turning the other cheek. The financial ethic of Scripture 
can be burdensome, giving God your, your first fruits. But in Joshua 1, the Bible says this, keep this book of law always on your lips. In fact, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And without being a person of his presence, I'll embrace the burden of the law and miss out on the freedom of his spirit. Friend, this relationship with Jesus changes everything, including our desires, our thinking, our behavior, our proclivities, our identities. Jesus changes everything. And anything in my life that is off limits reveals the thing that I truly worship. Anything in my life that is off limits reveals the thing I truly worship. God, I'll give you everything but my finances. I've found what you worship. God, I'll give you everything but my sexual identity. I've found what you worship. God, I'll give you everything but my opinions on these seven issues. I have found what you worship. And so for us, what we recognize is that the law, the commandments of God are hidden in the presence of God. And that as you get in the presence and it begins to transform everything inside of you and outside of you, including your sphere of influence, your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your proclivities, your identity, all of those things, it presents to us multiple altars in our life where we've got to make a decision again to sacrifice the things that we have held dear in exchange for this abundant life. It wasn't just the law that was found in the Ark of the Covenant. It was also Aaron's staff. The staffs or, or, or a shepherd's rod was prominent in that part of the world and in that culture. You see it referenced all over scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He, he leads me by the still waters and in the green pastures. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Aaron and, 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 and Moses both had staffs or rods when, when they went to encounter Pharaoh. Do you remember when Pharaoh's magicians threw down their rods on the ground and it became like a snake? It was Aaron's rod that was thrown down that consumed the other snakes. It was a representation of leadership, a representation of ability, a representation of supernatural gifting, and most of all, a representation of spiritual authority. In number 17, there is a dispute amongst the Hebrew children. And they are grumbling against the leadership of Moses and Aaron and wanting to go in a different direction. Moses tells all the tribes, gather a staff from each of the 12 tribes, and we will lay it before the ark along with Aaron's staff. And whatever staff blossoms by morning will serve as a sign of God's chosen leader. Friend, here's the problem. We live in religion and we visit revival. And I'm here to tell you in the new covenant, the presence isn't what we visit on a Sunday, it's where we're planted for eternity. And when you're planted in the presence, what blossoms from your life will be the only defense you need against the naysayers and the critics. I love this picture of number 17. Hey, come lay out before the presence. Allow the wheat and tares to grow together. Man, just get in front of who God is and allow him to be the one who adjudicates the fruit of your life. Just, just get to the pre just lay out before the presence. If we could just get to the presence of God, and, and the Bible tells us that Aaron's staff is made out of, a, out of an almond tree branch. And as he lays it before the Lord, he wakes up in the morning, and there is a fresh bud, a fresh almond that coming out of the branch. It's such a significant moment 
for the Hebrew children that they take that, they put it inside of the ark, and they never take it out again. Fred, I'm here to tell you, when you're in the presence, if you'll make a decision to live in the presence, what you become like is a tree that's planted by the river. You bear fruit in season and out of season. Because all of a sudden, what you begin to recognize is that the most significant contributor to the fruitfulness of my life is not the season I'm in, it's the spirit I have. And so if I'm a, I'm a person who has been abandoned to the presence of God, then if I'm in a corona season or not, if I'm in a valley or a mountain, if I'm in a good mood or a bad mood, if I'll be a person in the presence, then what will blossom from my life is fruitfulness. They're grumbling against Aaron, complaining. Why does he get to lead the Levites? Why does he function as the high priest? Why is he the person who gets to be Moses' sidekick? And it's like God speaks in this moment. And, and it's like God is speaking to the, to the people of the nation of Israel. And he says, I sovereignly choose. I appoint and I also put down. I cause nations to rise and nations to fall. These are things that I placed in my hand. Another man's fruitfulness is not your prerogative. Another man's blossoming, another woman's creativity is not your place to put an opinion for it's who God has sovereignly chose. And Aaron's just a person who got laid out before the presence and he had a lot of problems, but he found the secret to success. I'm a person in the presence. That's why I want to be moved by the presence of God, the person of Jesus. So I want to be so aware of that, reminiscent of that when we gather on Sundays. It's not just some sort of kind of weird spiritual reality. You know, the presence of the living God is amongst us. And it's not just that the Ten Commandments were found in the Ark of the Covenant or Aaron's staff, but it was finally the jar of, of manna. And, and you know manna, it was the sustenance that rained from heaven. It fed the Israelites for 40 years. And let me say this to you this morning. Our provision belongs in the place of presence. Now, we know that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness there within. But when provision is invested in the presence, God takes what happened in a moment and manifests it over a lifetime. Everything that you feel like you have laid down in pursuit of the presence of God becomes like a bowl of manna in the ark. And as I give it to him, it is poured out in greater measure from him. I'm going to take this bowl of manna. I'm going to take this provision. I'm going to take this sustenance. I'm going to take this creativity. I'm going to take this time. I'm going to take this talent. I'm going to take this treasure. And I'm going to give it unto you as a sacrifice, trusting that whatever I keep in the presence will be rained down on top of me. See, that's why we're people of generosity. Because I know that whatever I invest in his presence, God can trust me with from heaven. And when we pray, you know, these prayers of blessing that God would open up a heaven and pour out a blessing that we could not even contain, it's a picture of manna coming down from heaven. And what we have entrusted to God in the pursuit of who he is, in being people who are chasing his presence, those are sacrifices that we have made in holy moments where God says, if you will trust me with your little, I can trust you with a lot. 
Sometimes we're scared to let go of the things that we hold so tightly. Our desires, our dreams, our insecurities, our affliction, our sicknesses, our opinions. We're so scared. We hold on to those things so tight. I, I can trust God with everything else, but I'm just not sure I can trust him with this. And Fred, I, I promise you that whatever you have traded in, whatever you have given in pursuit of who he is, it's like the elders who lay their crowns before the throne. And every time they lift their heads up, there's another crown for them to lay down at his feet. And what I will give to God, God will multiply and send back. Verse 11 of Hebrews 9, the Bible says this, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. And how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first. I think one of the reasons why in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament we see descriptions of heaven or descriptions of the Ark of the Covenant and they're always filled with the most majestic language that you can imagine. It's covered in gold. It's uh, In heaven, it's the sea of glass or the sea of crystal around the throne of gold surrounded by emeralds and diamonds and rubies and precious gems and jewels and a rainbow encircling his head. And it's like these human writers are struggling to describe the majesty of, 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 of who he is and what he looks like and his domain. And, 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 and it's almost as if to say, that the response of us on this side of heaven as we gaze upon the beauty and the majesty of the Lord is to bring us to this confession that God is more precious than silver. He's, he's more valuable than gold. He's more beautiful than diamonds. And there is nothing that we desire that compares to him. And maybe for you today, Fred, there needs to be a reassessment or a reassignment of the value that you've put on being a person of God's presence. Well, I love getting stirred and challenged on Sundays, but I'm invited into the presence every day of the week. And it's when you and I make a decision to be people who will settle at nothing less. Look at the value that King David puts on the presence of God in the Old Testament. As king of the nation, the most powerful person in the world, with the largest army and the most resources, second to none, his confession is better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. David tells the Lord, I, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your temple than any other position. It's like the king of Israel subjecting himself to the high king of heaven says everything that I've accomplished on this side of eternity pales in comparison to one moment in your presence. 
And Fred, for you and me today, I think that you would agree that there's probably nothing that our country has needed more than an invitation to the mercy seat where His presence rests. An invitation to the mercy and the grace of God that commands our attention, demands our allegiance, and invites us into transformation. And this is why the New Testament says we can boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need because God invites us in. There's mercy. There's rest. There's peace. There's fullness. And it's found in His presence. Fred, would you stay with me all across this room as we close in prayer? And I believe that God is stirring us afresh and anew in this season. As we are saying, God, there's one thing of I sought and there's one thing that I've desired to be in the house of the Lord, to gaze upon your beauty, to inquire in your temple in my time of trouble. He would hide us in his pavilion. God, that's our desire, our plea, our prayer this morning that you would do by your spirit what no man can do, and that your presence would transform us into your likeness and into your image forever changed. Fred, if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I, I, I'm far from God, or my heart feels far from God, I want to recommit in this moment to be a person who's pursuing the presence of God. In the morning, pursuing the presence of God. In the evening, pursuing the presence of God. But I believe that this is like a line in the sand moment and God is inviting you to cross over into a fresh aspect of spiritual maturity and development by which you discipline yourself into a lifelong pursuit of who he is. It's not for a moment, it's for life. We end a time of worship and prayer. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you forward in an act of consecration unto the Lord, in an act of hitting the reset button on some of the patterns and behaviors of your life. Starting today, afresh and anew, God, on this day, I'm going to be a person of your presence. Fred, in just a moment, if that's you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you forward. We're going to end in prayer and in worship. And I just felt like I wanted to give an opportunity this morning for people to stay in the presence long enough for God to do business in their hearts. Don't let this moment pass you by. Don't be just so quick to just get out of it that you miss out on an opportunity to be changed by it. Friend, today there's a call from heaven. Come to the mercy seat. Receive help in your time of need. Receive outpouring in your time of need. Be a person surrounded by the presence, baptized in the presence, captured by his beauty. Friend, if that's you, when I count to three, I'm just going to invite you to the altar. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We're just going to spend time in the presence. And we're going to allow God, the great physician, to do what only he can do, surgery on our hearts and on our minds. Come on, friend, if that's you, one, Come on, two, come on, three. Just come to the altar right now. Come on, friends, step out of your seat. Come to the altar.
Come on, let's do business with the Lord. Come on, let's get right in our hearts. Come on, let's get right in our minds. Come on, let's make a fresh declaration this morning. We don't just attend a church called Pursuit. We are people who have been marked by a pursuit of His presence. I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not going to hide it. This is who I am. I'm going to give my life for it. We are people in pursuit of the presence of God and allow His Spirit to do what only He can do in your life. Come on, friend, let's press in. Come on, let's pray. Come on, let's pray in the Holy Ghost. Come on, let's allow that thing to be stirred up inside of us as we've come to the mercy seat we're coming to the mercy seat we're coming to the seat of grace the seat of power the seat of presence and we're saying holy spirit do what only 